Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two... One. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to uh, West Point, Mississippi. The studio. Yeah, to the Gamekeeper Studio, home of Mossy Oak brand camo and Mossy Oak Properties. Yeah. Real proud of those guys. I'll tell you what, it's, there is, the rural land market is hot right now, I've got to tell you. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting what's going on there, and it's, Properties is the place to find it. Yeah, they've got a very vibrant website with lots of... Uh, Lots land of land for stuff. sale. Land yeah, for sale. you know, I actually had a really good experience with Mossy Oak Properties about a year ago this month, as a matter of fact. So is this the acquisition of the Ponderosa? It, it, it is. I just I had a really good experience, so I can I can from the heart tell people that you ought to check out Mossy Oak Properties because I had a really good experience. What's cool is looking at the listings on the website and how detailed the, the information you can get. Yeah, for every little track, you know, for maybe the. Uh, general guy they wouldn't enjoy it but for somebody like us that's mm-hmm. looking for something like oh it's got three ponds it's got a spring fed cr- you know all that stuff yeah. like oh yeah yeah our agents are great and they're doing a, to Allison's point a better job than ever of really highlighting what's important about the land with these drones and this technology they got I mean you can virtually go on there and, and feel like you're really walking on the property nothing's like walking on the property yeah. but you really get a good get, sense of what's going on there more better now than ever than ever that's I love really looking cool. at all the stuff I can't afford no that's all I do I look at it all the time like man one day yeah. Yeah. I, would, I would send a link to my wife yeah. and I'd say have we deposited any eight million dollars yeah. what's the monthly on this. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. So anyway, so go to mossyoakproperties.com and, and, and check it out. It's, it's, it, they're just a bunch of good guys. Yeah, it's a bunch of good stuff yeah, out there. It, it really on. is. So, Get out there and get you your own piece of nature. That's right. That's right. So, so moving along, this we're going to have uh, later on, we've got Johnny McWright will be in here. We're going to be d- talking about dirt. Discussing the dirt. And it's going to uh, get deep, I hope. Man, I'm excited about it, I tell you. It's going to get dirty. Yeah, oh, he's an old mad scientist, and and uh, he's a very interesting guy. If we can keep him on topic, we'll learn something. Well, you know, I'm not good at that. I'm not going to (laughs) be. You're going to have to do that. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're looking at the 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 we every week we talk about blood on the biologic, and in my Facebook feed this past week, the seasons have opened up north, and there are guys killing turkeys. They they are wearing them out up. Sometimes I do best to not look at social media and see how many turkeys other people are killing. 
I've had a you know pretty rough season myself, so I've refrained from social media myself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't want to rub it in anymore. No, I, I'm I'm there with you, uh, but I am seeing them, and Pennsylvania's come in. We've got. Like I said, I'm thinking about doves, you know. <laughs> well, the, so uh, look, there's a couple of people I wanted to bring a little attention to. There's a young girl named Annika Alberg killed her first turkey this morning. Oh wow! Yeah, she's a cute little girl. She's hunting with her dad, and he's the guy that's building those gamekeeper blinds. Okay. Yeah, and so they had nice. a great hunt just this morning. They did, and you know, and then our friend Eric uh, Ganster that runs the yes. tra- trail camology sent a beautiful picture. Oh my goodness, that was a what's bird. what's cool about that is he took a little bit of advice from us and ran with it on frost seed and clover, and then just a few weeks later he smashes a long beard. In this in frost seeded clover yeah. field. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Look, Lanny, seriously, Proofs he frost seeded back in uh, maybe February, I guess. Yeah, maybe Where early is March. He? Yeah, he's in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And his, he's got an Instagram page called Trail Camology. Yeah, I, awesome. I believe that I've seen that. And he, oh, excuse me, Chase Hunt. Just this morning. Yeah, Chase, everybody, Chase Hunt. Okay, that's, that's a whole, whole podcast. So, but he killed a turkey in that in that that clover. He's been sending me pictures, and it's, it's been up and growing. Just it's just amazing how beautiful it was. And he killed a turkey in it this morning. Mm. Well, good yeah, for I was him. When I saw that photo, I was like, absolute success right there. Yeah, I mean, that's really cool to see it come full circle like that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, and I'll tell you, the you know this week there's. I had a call last night about uh, we've got a friend here in West Point, Shane Lampkin, mm-hmm. that it, that you know. His yeah. son Nate killed his first turkey. Well, congratulations to Nate! And they've been hunting him for three days, and then oh, the, tough bird, the huh? day they finally killed him, they're working the bird. And he's coming across a field, and th- th- he's about sixty yards out. He's getting you know getting closer, and all of a sudden they see a truck ride down the gravel road, and the truck stops, backs oh. back up, and shoots at the same turkey they're hunting. Was it a black Chevrolet Silverado with a camper on it? Did he say? Yeah, you know what he did. He, that does sound about uh, right. I don't but, know. You know, but, there's a guy riding around here. <laughs> yeah, that sounds familiar. But yeah. the turkey started, took off flying, and uh, and Shane's son Nate killed the turkey. So, oh, and then they went and chased after the after the the guy who shot the poacher. So that's just crazy. He had a Somebody double hunt, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, it really is. So anyway, so congratulations to Nate, and then yeah. hopefully they'll catch that uh, that guy who. Yeah, no doubt about it. And then it's been a sad week around here, Lane. Yeah, well, you know, Mac, you forgot about Mac, you know, blood on the biologic. At the last last day, part of the of the season, he drug one back to the office. So. You know, he did. Yeah, I know he didn't want to mention it, but I just well, felt obliged to build it up, you know, to, to bring it up. Yeah, well, he sent me all these pictures. These birds are so special. Ah. This bird was so special. He wouldn't rub it in, would he? You know, <laughs> photo of the beard, yeah. photo of the spurs. It's, well, congratulations, Mac. That's, that's good. It was good. Proud to end on a strong note there, Mac. Thank you. Here we go. There we go. <laughs> all so, right, so. So where's Dudley? I mean, I know we got our boy Austin in the house. Dudley's on vacation. What? The last text I got from him, which was highly delayed from when I sent it, which no big deal, but Dudley's usually pretty responsive. Unless he's on vacation. At times. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they were in a canyon kayaking or something, you know, right? Uh, Dudley's Alice. Good for him. So there's no telling what he's doing. Everybody listening, you know, Dudley is on vacation, but he'll be back. But we got our own Austin in the house right now. Since we're talking about dirt, wouldn't couldn't have a better person at the table with us. Yeah, that's right. Got a lot of them fingernails. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. (laughs) All right. Well, yeah. So uh, I think we let's just, uh, Mike, have you got a commercial planned? 
We'll get Mike in it. Mike's always texting every time I look at him. Yes, I do. So I have a commercial, and then following the commercial, I have a little field tactic if you ever get lost. So this week I want to talk about wildlife sweet corn, uh, and I'm I'm glad Austin's here to kind of shed some light on that. So we're actually running a promotion right now on our one-acre bag of wildlife sweet corn. It'll be $39.99. You'll get a back issue of the Gamekeeper magazine and a truck decal. And you can also find our feature article about planning and how-to on the Gamekeeper website. Such a great product. Oh, it is. Now I was going to ask Austin, you know, people kind of intimidated planting corn sometimes. Is this something you can broadcast pretty easily? How have you planted in the past? Yeah, I've I've done it always wrong, and <laughs> I've figured out what works. Tell you us know, about the right way. Yeah, you can definitely broadcast corn. It's uh, it's not ideal to some people. Uh, if you've got a planter, you've got a drill, you can block off holes and do the whole, you know, really spacing it out. The biggest thing is plant population per acre. Don't put out more than you can feed it. Um, and we'll get into a ton of that with Johnny later, but, you know, Instead of trying to maximize the amount of plants per acre, make sure everything is right in the soil so that what is there can grow a really good crop. Because corn can be finicky. You know, it can go through these phases where it really needs some water and can kind of disappoint you compared to some other stuff that's just a little bit more forgiving. Um, but, man, it really is easy to grow. Once you get it up and out of the ground and get some legs underneath it, it will take off if you've done your homework on the on the front side of it. Yeah, and this is some sweet corn variety. Yeah. Some and there's also some Indian corn in here, if I'm not mistaken. Well, we've got three varieties this year, and they're grown right up there in the same county I live in, which mm-hmm. is really cool because I can go look at the stuff that's being grown before we bag it up. You know, but uh, it's really special stuff. Uh, it's three different heirloom varieties. Um, they've all got slightly different maturity rates, slightly different heights, um, but they all are a little bit sweeter corn than what you're going to find in your typical ag corn these days. Mm. They do grow a little bit different. They're not quite as tall. Some of the ears may look a little different. They definitely got some really cool But they're way more to palatable them. to wildlife. They are, man. You know, like I imagine you probably eat much of the corn yourself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and if you will go break off a stalk that's growing down the road from it of ag corn and then break off a stalk of this and taste, taste it, you'll know I the difference. taste it. I know deer can taste it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's how we found out about this. The guy was just talking about how this corn was consumed prior to some Roundup uh, corn that was across the or planted very close to it. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest, uh, I don't want to call it a misconception, but just a little bit of a hesitancy from people not planting is that it's not Roundup ready. But we grew corn for dozens and dozens of decades before herbicides right. came along. Sure. You can grow it without Roundup. Well, it's non-GMO. It's not that we're anti-GMO, but it is a non-GMO heirloom variety mm-hmm. uh, that I think that just as many people are eating as they're feeding their deer to, honestly. <laughs> when Can I see the names come across, I was like, they're not planting that for deer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Can you say heirloom? Heirloom. Heirloom. Okay, there you go. How did I say heirloom? I got a heirloom. <laughs> <loom. laughs> All right, well, good. Well, Mac, thank you. That's a good commercial. And are, are you, what is this? You've got some instant wisdom that you're going to put on us? I think I think we've all been lost in the woods a couple times. And my dad shed some light on me here recently. He said, if you ever get lost in the woods, you just got, all you got to do is find a possum. Yeah. And if you follow that possum, you'll end up in the middle of the road sometime. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Okay, Mac. That's good. That's that's really good. Well, why don't we get started? Let's. uh, Well, you know, I think there's. We need to pay a little homage before um, Bobby. I know you don't want to talk about it much, but it was a sad day here at the mole hole. 
uh, we had a, a, a member of the of the gamekeeper family that um, actually passed. Been here since when? Well, 2007. 2007. Yeah. So our our office goldfish Goldberg, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know. He's tired of being in Bobby's office or what it was, but he <laughs> leapt out of the aquarium <laughs> to his death on Good the man. office floor. Good so goodness. fourteen years, fourteen years old. Where we we just want to memorialize him with just a little bit of a, a moment of silence here. Wow, I tell you. He was a good goldfish. He was too. a good goldfish. <laughs> Easy to talk to. Yeah. yeah. Rest in peace, Goldberg. Yeah. I just can't believe he lived as long as he did. Yeah, I did. For all the other ways that people tried to kill him. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, he survived all that. And then, yeah. The things that were death. sprinkled in that water over the years. Yeah. Well, so when I got here yesterday morning, I immediately assumed a raccoon had gotten him. Yeah. Anybody that knows our office, uh, you know, we're, we're dead centered in the middle of, of wildlife. So we often have wildlife in the office with us. Mm. And so I blamed it on a raccoon or well, a cat, but they ended up finding him yesterday yeah. laying underneath the couch. Anyways, a little so, sad day right yeah, here, but rest in peace, Goldberg. It is. it is. All right. Well, thank you, Lanny. So let's move right along. We, we've got the mad scientist himself, Johnny McWright, is sitting in the guest chair here. And, Johnny, we, what we wanted to – we appreciate you coming over from Greenville. You're a Mississippi-grown fellow, and, and, and uh, look – we uh we're, we're going to be able to understand you when you talk. That's why I'm so excited. Yeah. yeah, he's from the Delta, so I can understand what he's talking about. That's right. <laughs> so, what what we want to do today, Johnny, is we want to talk about what guys need to do prior to planting a food plot, what they can do to improve the health of their soil, what what they need, just everything they need to understand. We want to we want to talk this through, understanding lime, understanding pH, understanding microbes, understanding all these different things that go into the soil that you know so much about, and it's a long topic, but that's what we want to do today. Well, I'm glad to be here, and I appreciate you inviting me over. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the best best thing that I can tell you, you know, uh, my wife says that, you know, the reason I've survived 45 years in business is I can seem to always be able to find a solution to a problem and I think the first thing you have to do is define the problem uh, before you can, before you know how to fix it. And uh, I think the biggest thing is good planning. Honestly, I mean, you've got to have a plan. And I think so. So often people get in a hurry when it comes to food plots, and you just gotta, you just gotta back off a little bit, sure. take your time, and 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 understand what you know what the process needs to be. You know, if if that makes any sense. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, that starts out by knowing what's in your soil. I mean, that's where you've got to start. So it really depends if, if you get a – it depends on if you get a place that's already got food plots that somebody's been growing, you know, uh, or if you're actually going out and clearing a piece of property to start the process of, of, of creating a food plot. just depends on which way you're going with it. So let me start off, and I should have introduced you a little bit better, but Johnny is the owner of Delta Ag. Mm -hmm. So we're in Greenville, Mississippi, and he has helped farmers across the South and the Midwest for the last 45 years. You've made your living by 
answering questions and providing products to solve these problems that, that we're going to ask you about. So, guys, can actually on Plant Biologic, we sell some Delta Ag products, Absolutely. and we have for years. So, mm-hmm. we're believers in what you've got, and we've seen you make a difference in, being, in the advice that you've given. So, why don't we just start with a simple question? So, if a guy's in a hunting club, and they've got a few food plots, and they're going to take over and do a new food plot, and they're thinking, oh, this has never been planted before. This is going to be great ground. Is that true? And what are the first three or four things a guy needs to do to make that plot be all that it can be? Well, the first thing they've got to do when they when they when they clear it off, the first thing they got to do is they got to realize that there's a lot of crop residue, a lot of residue underneath the ground, whether it be roots, leaves, twigs, or whatever, and in some cases even even uh, uh, limbs from trees. You know, they get buried down in there five or six inches deep when they go in with a dozer and try to push it off and clear it off or whatever. That crop residue, that residue that's down there from clearing it off has to be dealt with at some point. You know, that's that's the first thing. And 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 in my mind, the best way to do that is to go ahead and try to break the ground and get that soil mixed in as deep as you can down to six or even seven inches. If it's a sandy soil, you might get that deep. If it's a red clay soil, you'll be lucky to get down four or five inches at, at, the, at the most. Mm. So the first thing is to mix the ground up, you know, and mix the residue in with the soil. That's yeah. the first thing. Well, and you you mentioned about when you said that about a bulldozer pushing off that top layer. But a guy needs to be careful that he doesn't lose his top layer of soil in that scenario as well, doesn't and he? The hard, and that, that's a tough thing that I've experienced myself. You know, you tell them, just scrape the ground, get the, get the, get the residue, not the soil. And you go back and you look at it, and it looks like they've moved three or four inches of soil. That topsoil is the richest soil that you've got. The lower you go in the soil profile, the less nutrition you find. That's just the nature of soil. So all of the all of the nutrients and everything that you need to grow a crop, really and truly, with the exception of moisture, is going to be in that top six inches. For those guys that have food plots in areas that they're trying to establish, let's say it's an old uh, logging deck, which notoriously that's where food plots a lot of times get, end up being placed because it's an easy opening that they don't have to clear with a bulldozer. Do you see that there would be some pretty good advantages, especially with that clay or uh, churdy type dirt of using, say, a subsoiler uh, the first go around to try to bust up some of that compaction and be able to run the disc a little bit deeper? I don't know about a subsoil. A parabolic subsoil goes 16, 18 inches deep, but a, but a, a, a chisel, mm-hmm. to chisel that ground would probably be a really good thing to do because when they get through pushing all that around with that dozer, they're going to compact that ground pretty good. So you got a compaction issue. The other thing that you can do with a chisel, a lot of times you'll, you'll, find, you'll find larger timber that's left out there that that dozer covered up that you can get out of the field too. There are a lot of advantages to a chisel. And, uh, I mean, we took a, I forget, I think it was like a 16 or 18-foot chisel. We cut it in half and made two of them. And we use them on both tractors, and we use them pretty regularly, even even on food plots that have been in, you know, been in food plots for 15 years. Mm-hmm. So during the normal cycle of a guy going and planting his, uh, plowing his food plot, three uh, after three or four years, he's creating some compaction issues there? Yes, Yes, definitely. Most people, uh, uh, 
If you're disking, and, and it, I'll tell you something, if you're if you're pulling a small disc like behind a four-wheeler or a side-by-side or something, you're actually going to create more compaction there than you do if you use a tractor and a disc. Yeah. Because a tractor and a disc, a tractor can actually penetrate down several inches, but whatever at whatever layer that you that you're disking, whether it be four inches deep or six inches deep, or if you're dragging something behind a four-wheeler, it might be two inches. At that level, below that level is where you're creating what is referred to in the ag industry as a traffic pan, which is a compaction layer. And the amazing thing, and, and look, man, I've, I've spent too much time digging in the dirt, okay? The <laughs> amazing thing, <laughs> too much. Yeah. Uh, the amazing thing about that is that pan, it might only be a half an inch or three quarters of an inch thick, but it's stopping water, moisture from mm-hmm. getting below it. So it's dry like a powder below that, but you got a penetrator point, you know, you got to push through that and get rid of it so that you can take advantage of the full profile of the soil. Mm. You know, I've seen, I've seen roots go down, hit that pan and run sideways. Mm. And that's kind of how we found these deer radishes that we, that we, we sell the deer. Absolutely love them, but they are used by farmers in various places to bust up a hard pan. Two things. It'll bust up the hard pan. The other thing it does, it brings nutrients back up into the topsoil that have leached down, particularly potash. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that it can actually bring nutrients up. I mean, it's it's a good thing to do if you can get them planted. I think the key there is getting them planted where you can get some growth out of them you know, in really in the fall of the year. Yeah, to get that tuber to penetrate down as deep as you could. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're pretty, absolutely. They're pretty cool because they're getting used very widely in the cover crop world now for, you know, giving soils a rest for mm-hmm. a season. Uh, but the cool thing is, even if the deer don't completely wipe out the actual radish itself, which happens a lot, um, you know, that void that the radish tuber itself creates sometimes is, Four inches deep. Sometimes I posted a picture a couple of years ago of one like 12 inches, yeah. way past the traffic pan. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing is, like you were talking about, there's a lot of, I guess, immovable nutrients, maybe stuff like potash and phosphorus that don't move around in the soil very well that mm-hmm. get mined by that radish, and then it brings it up into that tuber and rots, and then it's a lot more available in the root zone to the next crop that you're going to plant. Would you Correct. say that's fairly true? Yes, that's exactly well, that. That was the the original intent of those radishes was to pull those nutrients back up, and mm. and uh, in the course of time, you know, they found out that it had a lot of other benefits too. You know, and, well, boy, and deer so, love them. Hey, one, you can't run a deer out of them once they find yeah. them. They're just like yeah, they love them. Cocaine. I think one of the biggest problems we have in the ag industry is we can't get enough acres on a given farm in those types of cover crops from one year to the next. I mean. It'd be great if we could cover crop everything, but it's it, you got to get rid of it to get a crop in, and mm-hmm. so it limits how much they can do every year. Food plot guys shouldn't have that problem, I wouldn't think. So, Johnny, so we're going back to that first question. Now we've we've had a bulldozer come in, and they've pushed off some of that that top residue to clear a plot, and then now we've incorporated what's left. What's the next thing a guy needs Pull to soil samples. Okay. You need, to, you need to pull soil samples, get them off to a lab to find out what you're dealing with. Uh, How long between, uh, I guess, incorporating the leftover organic matter should we wait before we have our soil test? It doesn't matter. You can do it immediately because you're going to do it immediately, and then a year later, it's going to look different. Gotcha. It's going to look completely different. 
But what you need to do first is you need to find out first what kind of what your pH is and what your organic matter content is. That's the two. Th- those things are critical. That's the two starting places. That's that's the starting place. I wouldn't worry so much about. I mean, people get wrapped up in phosphate and potash and micronutrients and all that in that initial process. I don't think that's as big a concern. If you if you find out that and you're going to find out that your pH is acid. I mean, it's going to be acid simply because of the process in the soil itself. Mm-hmm. It could be 4.8. It could be it could be as low as 4.6, as high as 5.3 or 5.4, 5.5. Maybe it's going to call for lime to bring the pH up. But if the organic matter content is good, and I would expect it to be, that soil pH is not nearly as critical. That organic matter content buffers that soil from having a problem with pH. So, so initially, it's really more about making sure that it's what we think it is, acid pH, high organic matter. Mm-hmm. So tell me if I've told people correctly this. So, you know, we've had customers for years that you know, they clear off a plot in the woods or maybe they've find a clearing in the woods that they think is going to be ideal for a food plot. And the first couple of seasons they plant it, even without any amendments through fertilizer or lime, they grow a really successful food plot. Is that because that organic matter percentage is up high enough that even though that pH level may be down in the low fives, it's able to deal with the deficiencies of or the problems that stuff like aluminum or something creates in a soil Mm-hmm. But because their organic matter is up there at two and a half or three percent, it deals with that a lot better. Is that is that That's true? That's correct. That's correct. It actually offsets the issues that the low pH causes. But you're not going to be able to keep that up. Is that what? No way. Correct? No. You, that's right. It's almost like a false healthy situation. Believe it or not, for two or three years, it's like man, everything is great. I don't have to do anything. So you quit doing it. And you say, well, I don't need to do all the stuff they're doing. My stuff's doing good. Well, the third year you get to scratching your head. So it didn't do quite as good. Well, it was probably weather. And then the fourth year, it doesn't do as good. It may even do worse. He said, man, I got to go to scratching my head. At that point, when they pull a soil sample, they're going to find out two things. They're going to find out the pH of that soil has gone even lower. But what's worse is organic matter content because they're processing that residue has gone even lower. So now I got low organic matter and low pH. Now I got major problems. Now I've got a problem where I got to know what my nutritional levels are, which makes that soil test even more important. So it's not as important, true, but you need to make sure you know initially that it is what we think it is or what it should be. And if that's good and if your organic matter is good, then you got a couple of years, you got some breathing room. I would focus on breaking down crop residue during that period of time as much as growing. And then after that, it's even more critical that you get your soil tests and, and to be honest, more than anything else, get the, get the lime out there. Yeah. So is there some tricks, uh, tips that you've learned through the years to breaking down the, the crop residue? Yes, yes. We've, we've worked. Look, man, we worked, we worked on that in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. And, of course, we have a product that we use that helps with that. But uh, that being said, the first thing is when you break down crop residue, and, th- and this goes back to research, and there's a range, but the standard that's accepted is it takes about 30 units or pounds of actual nitrogen, units of nitrogen per acre 
to it to speed up the composting process, which is to break down that crop residue. So if you can't do anything else, you could go in there as soon as you cleared that ground and before you start mixing all that residue up, put out 30 pounds of nitrogen. That'll help it more than anything. And would you mix that with soil solutions, the, your Delta Ag product? I, I know I've seen that recommended to people. Yes, I definitely would. The 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 thing about the nitrogen feeds that, that soil cycle, okay? What soil solution does is it enhances microbial activity. It feeds the microbes. Oh, you're going to get Lanny excited. One, I know, man. Do what? <laughs> Lanny loves to talk about microbes. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> He'll go there in a minute, I promise you. Go ahead, please. He, he's got that. He's got a look on his face. You yeah, know, I'm looking did. over there and thinking, eh, I don't know about that guy, you know. <laughs> he's all into microbes <laughs> or whatever. Or whatever. <laughs> so um, tell us this on the soil sampling because the average food plot guy, is not going to be able to go out there and core sample or take a probe and probe sample to get a true profile of the soil that he's needing to sample. So would it be better for that guy who's got a quarter acre plot in the woods or he's got 10 quarter acre plots to sample what he's disked up and it's more of a true representative of the whole area? Yes. Yes, he's much better off to break the ground, disk it, mix it all up, that top four, five, six inches, whatever he can do. And then he can go out there with a soil with a garden trial if he wants to, because they're gonna they're gonna need um uh I, I guess you know what a like a pint of soil would be. A pint would be like a one pint milk carton, for example. That kind of volume. That's what the lab's gonna have to have to have enough soil to run all the tests that they want to run. Yeah. Yeah. There, so there's, we, a, there's a new test going now where they don't need quite as much dirt, soil, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so we've got a soil test service that we offer through Biologic. We're real proud of it. It's really simple and easy to understand, and it can answer all these questions that you're talking about. Especially and, if you tell them you want the advanced, which is like really getting up, you know, a landscape put on the wall of, hey, here's what we're dealing with from A all the way to Z, or you can get the you know the nine dollar one that everybody uses that does NPK, calcium, magnesium, current pH level, it which gets does, everybody it, in. The it group. probably carries you through CEC and base saturation stops it right does. there. It yeah. does. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's it's a really good service. I've been real proud of that. There's a lot of people use it, and then they the, the lab that we work with they save everybody's results. So a year from now, if you forgot or you lost your email or whatever, you can go back. Yeah. and pull it back up. And it's crop specific. I love that about it. You can put on there whether you're planting corn, whether you're planting clover, and you're, you know, not only are your recommendations going to come back specific to what you're planting, but they're also going to give you uh, fertilizer and lime recommendations based on what they're seeing from mm -hmm. your soil, not just some broad spectrum, yeah. you know, analysis. Well, I think, I think, I think the, the one thing you got to remember, though, the most important thing in there is the quality of the sample that you send to the lab. The lab's only as good as the sample. Absolutely. And that's why with food plot people, and, and I talk with I talk with more of them, I talk with a lot of them, okay, over time. And the, the reality is if they'll break the ground and disc it and mix it in first, you don't have to worry so much about the quality of the sample. The quality of the sample gets to be a problem when they go out on ground that was disc last year, planted, they got a crop on it, or they go in and they bush hog and then they want to go in and pull a sample and they want to use a, 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 a garden trial to do that. Now what they're doing is they're getting a profile of what's in that sample 
instead of a profile of that full six inches. So mm -hmm. if you mix it up, you don't have to worry so much about the quality of the sample. That's why I say disc it, then pull the samples. It just, it, it tends to be more consistent. Yeah. And it and, may and, be you that told me this years ago, but removing vegetation in that top layer of organic material is pretty important because that could potentially give you some false readings. It, on. It, it will give you false readings. It will because what you've got there is you've got organic. You, that's really not organic matter. That's crop residue that hadn't broken down into organic matter. Mm. And, and so, could it, could it not also have some high levels of certain nutrients in it from the last fertilizer application yeah. that could really throw that off? Yeah, it's it's just. I mean, you just. I mean, our guys, and and look, we 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 did soil testing for. 25 years and and uh, we don't do it we don't i still look at soil samples data for people for dealers and farmers literally every day but we don't do the sampling anymore but we had the advantage of having a sample this this we did the sampling we also ran the lab and we also monitored the crop so we had the whole process instead mm -hmm. of just the lab when you deal with a commercial lab, all they're looking at is what is in that box, and that's what that that's what a man needs to remember. So it's important that he get as good a representative sample as he can to send to the lab. Yeah, that makes and, a lot of sense. So well, should they even take it in different places in the food plot? You know, well, we we train our guys to use their foot, and whenever they and we use a soil probe. But I tell them what you do is, is you push down to bare dirt, and then you stick that probe in the ground. So that there's no residue on top, mm -hmm. you know. So, Johnny, can you can you tell us because we we want to teach people how to do it the right way. We don't we hear about people taking shortcuts all the time. I don't think there's any shortcuts in this liming process. Can you kind of go through why it's so important and how to do it right? And wh and what is the actual pH we're trying to achieve here? Well, that's that that's a really good question because the the, the reality is when the Understand what the lab does. Wet chemistry is nothing but numbers. It's just math. Uh, theoretically, six inches of soil, one acre square or cube, or however you want to look at it, is about two million pounds. Okay? So when they say that you've got 1% organic matter, it's 1% of two million. It's math. If they look at it and they tell you you've got 40 pounds of phosphate in the soil, that's 40 pounds out of that 2 million pounds. So it's all math. So so when you get to the point where you want to pull soil samples, the most important thing that you can do is make sure that you're covering that 6 inches in, in one way or another. So if you break the ground up and you mix it up, you can get it from wherever. It doesn't matter. If you don't do that, then you really do need to use a soil probe or you can use a garden or you can use a garden trial, but better yet, if you don't have a probe, use a, sharp, a sharpshooter and try to get the same amount of soil from each inch of that six inch depth. Yeah. So that you've got a rep, a representative sample not only of the area, but of the profile of the soil itself. You know, it's it's uh I mean it's just it's it's just so important that you get something that represents what you have. Okay, you so know. talk to me about lime in the place and uh, when 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 the when the soil lab tests it, they tell you the pH. And let's just say the pH is 5.3. They're going to run a second lab test. That lab is a buffer, it's called a buffer test. pH buffer 
and it tells you how much lime it takes. And this is important, to bring the pH to 7. So they're saying, I'm looking at this box of soil, and it takes so many tons of lime to bring that soil in that sample up to a pH of 7. Now, Austin, how many crops that we're growing in these food plots require a pH of 7? One or two. Not very many. Yeah. Okay. If you can get the pH up to 5.5 or 5.6 with any organic matter at all, your, your food plot's going to be fine in most cases. I would love to say get them up to 6. But if you got a red clay soil and you got a pH of 5.2 or 5.3, they're going to tell you it takes three tons, two and a half, three tons of lime to bring that soil up to a pH of 7. And I'm going to say, I don't need 7. Give me six and I'm happy. Even with clovers. It doesn't matter. It does yeah. not matter. Okay. Because here's the thing. If you say, well, okay, well, I gotta have three tons to get it up to seven, I'd love to get it up to seven. But it's 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 it, it, two things. It's a physically difficult task in a food plot, especially if you can't get a lineman truck in there. And the other thing is most soils are not gonna be able, they don't have the capacity to consume three tons of lime in one season or especially if you're going to do it six weeks before you plant a crop. The worst thing you can do is overlime it too fast. And that gets done, that gets done, it gets, it gets done in commercial agriculture way too often because they look at the soil sample and the soil sample says, I need two and a half tons of lime. So they say, okay, bring me two and a half tons of lime to the acre on these acres and let's put it out. Theoretically, that should bring the pH up to seven, but it doesn't because part of it, you know, gets broken down. Another part of it does its job. So out of that two and a half tons, you come back and I, look, I did this for years. Every three years, we'd monitor the same soils over and over again. And that's where we learned it, to be honest with you. The truth is, what you really need to do is put a ton of lime out. On heavy soils, you might go with a ton and a half. Wait two years, test it again, and put out more And when you need it, if you need it, how much you need in other words, or you could say, well, I got three tons. I'll put a ton and a half out now. I'll wait two years, put another ton and a half out. When you come back the third or fourth year and you test it again, you're going to have an improved pH. It may not be, it probably won't ever get to seven. Because at the same time that you're raising the pH with lime, you're growing a crop. You're putting out salt-based fertilizers, okay? You're breaking down crop residue and you're plowing. All of those things lower the pH. So we're lowering the pH while we're raising the pH. So to expect it to ever get to seven is not, it's just not reasonable. It's really, not, it's really just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I find somebody out there that can say, yeah, I had a pH of 5.2 10 years ago and I got a pH of seven today. Won't happen. But if he's at 6.3 or 6.4, he's won that battle. <clears throat> So uh, I'm going to ask a question, and, I, I and I'll to, probably have I this mean, I probably need to shut up. But no, anyway. no, look, no. I mean, we're doing good. Keep on. But I'm trying to make sure I understand it, because if I've got this question, I'm sure other people do as well. But as a gamekeeper, we're trying to grow. I'm going to use soybeans as an example. A nutritious crop, whether it's soybeans or clover, that's highly nutritious so that they, as deer are going through antlergenesis, and they're, we're delivering as much protein to them as we can. So by having that pH be as close to between 6.5, isn't that making that plant more nutritious, that plant able to uptake more nutrients from the soil? Yes. But let me throw this at you. At 6.3 or 6.4, you're going to get 90% of that nutritious benefit. You're going to go broke trying to get it to 7 
way too many cases to get that other 10%. Is it really worth it? I, I didn't know we were going to get into all this, yeah. but I'm, well, I'm, 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 I'm flat telling you. We're getting into all of it today. Yeah. What, what, <laughs> I, what I really like hearing is that it's more of a process and it's more of a goal right. to shoot for to get up into that mid-six range that we're all trying to get to. Because you, you were right a while ago when you asked the question, how many crops actually need a true pH of seven? It's really not many. Alfalfa, yeah. sandfoin. Those are a few, and those are on the food plot crops, a tiny percentage of what people grow. But clovers, beans, corn, all these type of things, cereal grains, in my experience of doing this, they tend to thrive in my area in the in the low to mid-sixes. That's where I've seen the best crops. So instead of, like you were saying, if you have a sample that says it's four and a half, and we're past that point of, not having as much organic material as we had when we started at a new plot and pH is more of a bigger factor now than it was. Instead of trying to put three tons out this first year that I'm putting it out, how about we put out one ton every year and work it in? Is that a better process? Absolutely. Absolutely. All day long. Let me, let me throw this at you. We work with growers that make 220 to 240 bushel corn. 70 and 80 and 90 bushel soybeans and on thousands of acres with pHs that are in the range of 5.8 to 6.2. So, I mean, there are things you can do, there's no doubt, and you need to keep your pHs. More important than anything, you need to keep that pH from falling past that 5.8 range, to be honest. And when you talk about your clover being 7, you know, if, if you can get your if you can get up to six two or six three, I think for the most part your clover's gonna do real good. Yeah. I really do. But but I, I just you know, I don't I don't I don't mean to try to contradict anything, but in reality and in and in my experience, which is only forty five years, I mean that that's that sounded sort of <laughs> my <laughs> wife will hear that and say that was arrogant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're actually being modest because yeah, you but you I mean I, I mean honestly, I'm just <laughs> telling you I'm just telling you the reality of it. The problem is it's easy it's it's actually easier to overlime it and create a problem on the top side with the pH is too high which is worse than having one I, I, if if you said I'm either going to overlime it or leave it at 5.8 what would you do Austin I'm pretty sure you're going to tell me to leave it I'd say leave it if there's a chance you're going to overdo it and get it up around 8 you're better off leaving it at 5.8 than you are getting it at 8 so tell me if this is right. You have just as many problems with micronutrient deficiencies at 7.4 or 8 than you do when you're at 5.1 and you have nutrients that can't be uptaken. That's when you correct. get it on the other side of the scale, which could happen by overliming, then you're looking at a situation where the plants are taking up too much of certain nutrients and creating toxicity on the other end of the scale. Is that correct? That that is correct. What you got to realize is if you if you take any one nutrient, there's one nutrient, for example, with manganese, it's readily available at anywhere from 5.2 to like 6.5. Okay. Well, it's going to be less available outside of that range. But then you look at magnesium and magnesium is going to be more readily available at 5.8 to 7.5. And so what happens is you got to squeeze your desire, your desired pH into um, 18 different nutrients that have different levels of pH that they like. Mm -hmm. When I say they like or that the plant can take them up. So, 
I mean, that's that that's what you run into. So it's like you're that it's 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 a process. Mm-hmm. We keep going yeah. back to that. You know, it's, sure. it is a big process. It is. It's, it's a process. So I think the takeaway here is <clears throat> pH is important. And, and how we go about applying the lime, that, that soil test is so important to know where to start and then to do it in, would you say moderation is the right word? Yes, yes. And, and we're not a quick a, fix. And, and I think Lanny started this thing off. It's with, not a, it's, did you, would you, did you it's say not it's a not a quick fix? fix. That's, a quick that's fix. correct. Okay, that's where I was trying to go. Yeah. This is a long-term process. Yeah, it's something that you need to be on your radar screen to do in every year, every other year. It sounds like you know. Mm-hmm. So. Look, I, I've got we've got we've got some plots on on our on our land uh, that have never been limed. Deliberately, deliberately never limed, and uh, I can take you out there when the oats are coming out of the ground or when the soybeans are coming out of the ground. You look at them and look at the rest of them. You can say, "What's wrong with that plot? It's got a pH of four point eight. It's got no phosphate, no potash in the ground. It, native that native soil is very, very poor. That's the reason it was in brush instead of pine trees or hardwoods. It's just a we call it crap. Yeah, cedar. <laughs> another word, cedar. So, so, cedar. Yeah. So what about liquid limes? I started off asking if the, we, we want to do things the right way, but so well, we hear people talk about this. What's your opinion? I, I, I tell them if the if their roads are too narrow for a lineman truck to cut some trees down and widen the road and get some lime. That's out. what I like to hear. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's that's the reality of it. Now we have we have a liquid calcium at Delta Ag Calcium Plus we've used for years, and. In the row crop industry, there are ways to apply those materials in and around the seed and the seedling crop. It's like tricking the plant into thinking it's in a good pH. When you talk about pH, what you're really talking about is the pH of water when it's in that soil. It's called the soil water pH. I don't, I don't, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but but that's really what it is. When soil, When water goes into the ground, what is the pH of that water when it's in that soil? That's what we're talking about. You can go in, and, and we do this with Calcium Plus. You can go in with Calcium Plus and put it in the furrow with the seed or two by two out to the side at planting or before planting, and basically it tricks the plant into thinking it's in a good pH so you can establish a good root system. Once you get a good root system established and you get good early seedling growth, you're not nearly as dependent on that pH. But you're not raising the pH of that ground at all. I mean, what we're talking about doesn't last three weeks. So it's a temporary fix, which in the long run, it's a lot cheaper to put the lime out. And I'm telling you about a product that I sell. Mm. And I tell people all the time, no, you're better off liming it. This is not going to do what you want to do. It'll get you by until you can lime it. Uh, there are companies that that uh, offer what they call liquid lime. And uh, there's even some suspension lime that's been used for a lot of years. It's not used much in the South anymore, you know. And, and the reason for that is it's just not as effective, and it's very expensive compared to putting lime out. Mm-hmm. You know, putting lime sounds expensive, you know. It sounds expensive when you're talking about $30, $40 a ton for something plus, plus uh, hauling. But you don't – it's not like you're going to do it every year. You may put a ton out every year for three years. right. But you're gonna haul. You're gonna you're gonna pay for hauling one ton or hauling three tons. It's gonna cost you the same amount of money over time. I'd rather do it and make sure I don't overlime it the first year. When I talk about overliming, if you put out two or three tons of lime at one time and you don't fully incorporate it into six inches and you don't do it six months before you plant, you're gonna have a plant 
that's suffering from an alkaline soil, and it's temporary because eventually the lime will work its way in. But you're talking about causing more problems than you got already, especially with your trace elements, Mm -hmm. when you start raising that pH up over 8. And you can do that temporarily by putting too much lime in the shallow topsoil. I would guess that would be a very common problem if you were using lime that's not been run through a real fine screen at the quarry and it's more of a sandy mm-hmm. um, consistency than the, the really super powdery lime that obviously probably is going to break down a little quicker. But I could see if two tons of the acre worth of very coarse lime was added, man, it would it would seem like it would take forever to work its way through the soil problem if it was never worked in. What happens is people get caught up in the calcium carbonate equivalent and they say, well, that's got 93% calcium carbonate. I said, yeah, but it's coarse. What about this line from Mississippi Quarry? Well, it's 80%. Well, that's a whole lot lower. Yeah, but it's fine. It's going to work for you better, faster than the coarse stuff. So what you're saying is exactly right. And, and I mean, in, in reality, most people don't have a choice. They're going to get whatever's at the closest quarry to them, the closest to them because, because of the cost of freight. You know, they're going to get whichever one. But if you're using a coarse lime, it's going to take longer. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. The other side of that is if you're using the powder, be real careful about liming right in front of planting a crop unless you know you can get it incorporated into six inches because it'll raise that pH up pretty quick in that top in that top couple of inches, which is your seed zone, your germination zone. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to overcomplicate it. But no, but I think, I, that's, do it right. I think that's something we probably don't preach to people enough is, I mean, you think about, because I've seen, you know, certain plants that we have seeds for that grow directly in the lime pile, you know, and find a way to survive. Right. But a broad spectrum talking across a food plot, it is not a good situation to have two tons of the acre worth of lime sitting on the very top that never gets incorporated in, right. especially if you're uh, using no-till drill type equipment and, and not really ever breaking the soil, which I wanted to get into because there's such a push these days. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but there's a huge, you know, growing uh, component of people that are all for uh, growing these massive cover crops and never really incorporating it into the soil, Um, using no-till type equipment, uh, crimping to terminate a crop and then planting right into it, which I get the benefits. There's tons of them. But for our guy... um, who is me, I don't have a no-till drill. I might can get my hands on one every now and then, but I don't have one. I don't have a crimper. A lot of guys just don't have the ability to use that route to plant. So incorporating this plant residue, hearing you talk about it a while ago, really intrigues me to know that, yes, we might be killing off a little bit of bacteria initially Mm -hmm. to incorporate this crop residue back in, but over the long term, this is better. Well, over the long term, it is better. And in reality, it's not practical for most food plotters, if that's a term to use, mm-hmm. uh, to try to do this no-till thing. I've, I've been trying for 15 years to come up with a perennial food plot. I call it a perennial food plot, meaning overseeding, putting out fertilizer, leaving it alone, tolerating the thistle and everything else, trying to figure out a way to not have to go in and burn it down and, and I'm with, I mean, with glyphosate, you know, kill it off, disc it up, work it all in, and start over every year. 
And in reality, in 15 years, what we have found is the best thing that we can do is work it up every year because the perennial thing just in that environment, it just, from my perspective, it doesn't work. And, and, and to clarify, I've got about 25 acres. They keep telling me it's 28. I think it's 25. We argue all the time about how much it is. But we've got, we've got ground, creek bottom ground. We got ground on the slope going up a hill. We got ground, we got flats on top of hills. I got some of all of it. I got red clay and I got some of the deepest, prettiest loamy sand you've ever seen. And I haven't had any luck with any of it trying to create what we would refer to as a no-till environment. Uh, one reason is this, this, the, this, the seed bed. It's so rich with so many different seeds from so many different years that have been there forever. All kinds of stuff comes up. And if, if you're in a clover, there's a limit to what you can put out there to kill. You can kill grass. You can get rid of the grass. And in a grass crop, you can get rid of the broadleaves. You know, but you can't get rid of other grasses. So, it, you know, it, you, you're, you're, dealing, you're dealing with a whole Challenge. different ball game where uh, in a row crop, at least they got the option of spraying under the crop. You don't have that because 99% of it's broadcast. It just, I, I haven't, I haven't had any luck with that. I, I, I just haven't. And uh, by the same token, growers are finding out no till's not forever either. You know, that's where issues. That's what that I wanted too. to ask is what, what issues are there with that particular method, which obviously there's some great benefits to about lowering soil temperature in the heat of the summer, because you've got that thatch layer and uh, the microbe activity, I guess is probably higher right there in the top layer, but long-term looking for, even though most food plot guys can't do that because they just don't have the equipment. Well, they don't, but in the, in the row crop industry, we're finding out and, and look, I've been, I've been chastised. I'm, I guess I'm used to saying what I think. Maybe that's a problem, but I've been chastised by some of the best no-tiller researchers in the country because I've said nothing's forever. And what happens is people will be looking at their, their, their creek bottom ground and they'll be looking at their red clay on top of their, flat or in the delta looking at their buckshot and looking at their sand and in reality over time they start seeing that it's not doing it you know the first couple of years is pretty tough in no-till and then for several years you really make these really great crops and everything's looking great then you all of a sudden you start seeing it starting to go the other way it's going the other way it's going to go the other way in the red clay is a lot quicker than it's going to go the other way in the sand okay and so what what happens is it gets to the point where it's actually instead of beneficial, it antagonizes the situation. The reason for that is because all your crop residue is on the ground, on top of the ground. It's not breaking down, okay, because it's on top of the ground. It's more like creating sod on top like thatch wood, uh, you know, on, on a turf farm. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's sort of like it, it builds thatch, thatch becomes sod, sod becomes soil. Soil becomes dirt. Anyway, um, I mean that's that's the process. So when when you get into that, you got all your residue on top of the ground. You got all your salt based fertilizers, and most ninety five percent of what you're going to buy in fertilizers are salt based. That's just part of it. I mean, potassium chloride is not a lot different from sodium chloride. Most potassium that you put out is potassium chloride. So you got salt based fertilizers. They're on top of the ground. And they have to get watered in and dissolve. But when they dissolve, they only going to penetrate so deep because you got all that thatch on top of the ground. Then you go and put your glyphosate out. Glyphosate is not good for microbes. 
you put it out. You got your herbicides you put out there. If if they were to use it in a, a food plot or something like an insecticide or whatever or a fungicide, all of that stuff kills microbes. So everything that you're doing hurts the microbial activity of that soil. Over time, it catches up, and the soil down underneath that top two inches becomes depleted mm-hmm. because the soil cycle has been disrupted. It, in, a, in a way, it's, it's the same as disrupting it when you disc it and do the same thing. But when you disc it, you're diluting all these things into six inches. And I've had people ask me, well, what do we do? Because it's not doing as well as it used to do. I said, it's real simple. You go back in there, you break your ground, you run a chisel over it. If it's sandy ground, run a subsoil or two. Do all of your da- all your tillage, resoil test it, put out whatever you need to put out, and go right back into no-till. Mm. And it works. And we've been doing it for years. It works. Kind of hitting reset button. Yeah. It's, it's like, thank you. That's a good way to say it. It's like hitting a reset button. You just say, hey, we're going to go back. We're going to redo this. We're going to fix it. We're going to go right back to what we were doing, and we're going to get 12 more years out of it. You know, and and on and on the on the really strong ground, the light soils, you'd get ten or twelve years. On some of the heavier soils, five or six years. I, I could tell you stories about going on farms where people were having issues with with yield, and uh, talking to them about what they're in, and they said, "Well, we're in no till. How long you been in it? We've been in it twenty years, but we ain't made a decent crop in five. Interesting. I said, well, do, yeah. you have, do, you, do you have a subsoiler? And I had one one family, they looked up on the hill and said, it's sort of like that thing up there. <laughs> the Johnson grass growing in it? Yes, sir. That's exactly what it is. My dad, we quit it. using them when dad passed away 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So you need to pull it back out. Grease yeah. alamite. Yeah. So for the, for the food plot guys. I'm just saying it's a good, it's a yeah. good, it's a great practice, but it's not a forever practice. Yeah. Right. For the food plot guy who's cleared a new plot or revamping an old one he soil tested he got what he needs in there we have a lot of products you know with brassicas in them whether it be a rapes and turnips um all these different hybrid varieties that we use that you know deer go crazy for one thing we've seen over the years obviously is these these crops work so well and guys just want to keep using them over and over and over which natural but what we also have talked with the guys in New Zealand that we get a lot of these uh, seeds from is, you know, the danger of creating a situation for soil-borne diseases because of Mono- monocropping. Yes. Yeah. Is is there a good answer? Is there a out of all the other things that we have that are a lot heavier cereal-based, cereal grain-based blends? What would you say would be a decent rotation for guys that let's say it's a hundred percent brassica crop? If we use that two or three or four years in a row, should we? When should you start looking at rotating that crop, and for how long to decrease any chances of? Obviously, what we're talking about depleting the soil. Those brassica crops pull a good bit from the soil because of all that leafy tissue, mm-hmm. but it's a little bit different than what corn might pull from the soil, which might be zinc or something like that. Yeah, but remember, you're not harvesting it. It's still there. Is that not true? Right. It's not going anywhere. I mean, you're recycling it. You know, it's a matter of how how long does it take you to recycle it. Well, but if you have deer browsing that crop and then going off and 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 you know they they defecate in their beds somewhere else. Yeah, but else. do they but do they eat it down to the bare ground? 
A lot of times they do. Well if they, they, well, if they do, then you're harvesting it. I mean, then then you're har- you Think of that as harvesting uh, the uh, in a grass crop. You're you're harvesting the grass, which means you're hauling the phosphate out of the field. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So that that that's that'd be no different guess, than a hay. That's no different than a hay field, mm-hmm. a hay meadow, yeah, where yeah. you harvest hay and you haul it away. I mean. We put, we do soil samples on somebody. And we get low minus phosphate levels. I call and say, "When was the last time y'all took? When did y'all take this out of hay? Well, How did you know?" I said, "I can look at the soil test and tell. <laughs> Nothing depletes it phosphates like hauling grass. Might as well say out out of a field." So that was a question I had because so that yeah. if you're soil testing every year, let's say, but you're constantly seeing a need for phosphorus and potassium, whatever it's calling for. If you've got half acre, one acre food plots in high den- high density deer areas where they're browsing it to the ground, which is pretty common, is that why you're constantly seeing a need for reapplication? Phosphate more so than anything. If if you're if you're if you're making seed and hauling the seed off, then you're then and and look and your uh, your radish is the same way because think of it this way: anytime you're making fruit, you're using potash. When you're making vegetation, you're using phosphate. You're using nitrogen for both. Hmm. So, so uh, one thing to look at is, what are we doing? Are we are we trying to raise grain, or are we trying to raise uh, vegetation? Yeah, we're we're in that vegetation mode. One hundred percent. I mean, unless you're growing corn, mm-hmm. then you're yeah, a little bit different yeah, story. Well, I mean, some you know, look, man, some people there are, are are raising. We do food plots for nutrition. Where we are, we're not allowed to feed. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that's fixing to change. But anyway, that's a whole other subject. But we're there. We're doing it. We have always done it for nutrition. Uh, there are people that want to grow something green that'll pull a deer out so they can shoot him, and that's all they're interested in. Their their goals are completely different from my goals or your goals. You know, so what their practices don't have to be nearly as intense, but. You don't need to pull a soil sample every year. I wouldn't. I mean, I, I'm, I'd be comfortable with every three years if you do a good job with it because what it's to do is if you have a three-year plan, you know, and people don't think about that. But if you say I got a high a high level, that means you got enough for three years. Yeah. I got a medium level, that means I got enough for two years. I need to be careful with that third year. That's if I got a low level, that means I don't have enough to make the crop. Yeah, that's interesting because if you look at our soil sample graphs, that's how things are listed is, you know, Really low, low, medium, optimum, and high. So that's right. a, that's a great point there of knowing. Well, I mean, that's what you need to pay attention to. I mean, you you should be able to get three years out of one good soil one good soil test without any without any real issues. So look, let's uh, let I know Lanny wants to ask about microbes. He calls them bugs. Let's go down that. Let's let's talk about that for a few minutes, and then we'll come back and summarize all this and make sure we. Made all the points that we want to, or asked all the questions that mm-hmm. we want to. John. So, Lanny, I know you want to talk about bugs. Why don't you ask that one? Yeah, it's just so interesting. You know, we've been enlightened over the last few years that that, that like we've talked about earlier. That there's a whole world up under there of things that are living, and they all work together to create the ideal environment. I think for growing crops. So, uh, help us understand a little bit about the roles that. Uh, microbes play, play, I guess, bacteria play in the whole scheme of things and how that relates to pH and fertilizer and all those different things in organic matter. Well, start out with when you buy your fertilizer. When you buy fertilizer, you buy one form of fertilizer. That fertilizer has to be applied, go into the soil. Then it has to convert 
to a form that the plant can use. You have to have microbial activity. You have to have bacterial activity to be more specific to be a part of that process. There's enzymes that have to be available that come from bacteria, and then you've got bacteria feeding on carbon, putting oxygen in the ground. That's a whole, I mean, I, I can walk you through the whole soil, soil cycle, but you know, that would be like five minutes. But anyway, uh, hey, the thing on. about it, let's, 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 do let's it. go. Yeah. Well, okay. You raise a crop. You harvest the crop, you leave crop residue in the ground, right? Which is roots, stems. Roots, leaves. stems, leaves, uh, burrs, uh, leftover seed, gotcha. everything. It's it's like we talked about the, the acorn tree, mm-hmm. 100-year-old acorn tree still feeding itself, and nobody's fertilizing it. Right. The soil cycle itself basically is, is designed to maintain that soil on its own all the time without anybody having to fertilize it. What happens is we go in and we break the ground and we break up that cycle. We stop that cycle or we slow that cycle down. But basically, if you if you have good microbial activity, microbes feed on carbon. Okay, that's what they do. They eat carbon. The more microbes you have, the more carbon you consume. The more carbon you consume, the more crop residue you have that gets fully composted and broken down. All right. In that same process, those microbes release oxygen into the soil. If you increase oxygen levels in the soil, think of it as making the soil more like a sponge. Now the soil's holding more moisture. If it's holding more moisture, now you've got more moisture and you got more oxygen. So you've got a a a, a more complete composting process. So you're breaking residue down, which is releasing more nutrients to the soil. Well, guess what those nutrients do? They feed the microbes. So the microbes are actually creating their own food by eating their food. Hmm. It's a cycle is what it is. And so what happens is when a soil, when you break the ground down, when you break the ground and you disc it and you put out salt-based fertilizers and herbicides or whatever, you lower the number of microbes. Now you've lowered the number of miles. Now they're not eating as much carbon, so you're not breaking your your uh, crop residue down as completely. You're not putting as much oxygen in the ground. Now it's not as spongy. It's not holding as much moisture. It's not breaking residue down as much, and it's not reducing nutrients as much, so it can't support as many microbes. So the microbe count goes down. We're talking from 3 trillion down to maybe 1 or 2 billion. That's and, and per pint of soil now. You know, you've seen a – do you ever take microbe? I mean, micro. listen to me, microbiology. Mm-hmm. You see the little Petri dish? Somebody gets a little thing, and they put something in it, and they put a little X across it. And you come back two days later, and darn thing's just grown full of something look like cheese. That's them. That's the capacity that microbes have. It's unbelievable what they can do. But they gotta have, they've got to have food and nutrition just like you do and just like your deer do. Which comes from the organic matter, the carbon you're talking about? Yeah, okay. carbon is organic. It right. is organic matter. That's, That's correct. So the soil, what that soil cycle does, we call it a positive soil cycle where we've got high microbe numbers, a lot of food, more oxygen, more water holding capacity, more nutrients released, better crop residue digestion, 
more microbes. So it's a positive cycle. The opposite of that is what we call a negative soil cycle, which means we got we got less microbes, less oxygen, less water holding capacity, less nutrient release, and to be honest with you, a poorer crop. So how a does, compacted soil. And and how do fertilizers play into that? I mean, in theory, but to me, what you're saying is in the perfect ideal condition, there'll be this perfect balance between microbes and, or, and organic matter that makes the soil perfectly healthy. Correct. So That's correct. In an ideal situation, no fertilizer is needed. The ideal situation is to stay up under that 100-year-old acorn tree and never break the ground that's under it or grow uh-huh. some crop in rows under it and compact the soil and break it down. What we're doing in farming is what we have to do. Gotcha. One reason that no-till has been so popular is because of the fact that it helps slow down the the uh, the, the breaking down of that cycle. And those, it sort of brings that cycle back to some degree. The problem is, like we talked about, it's not it's not permanent. Mm-hmm. It's just not permanent. It doesn't work that way. Um, the the when you get out in the forest and you kick those leaves aside. It smells just like fresh disc dirt. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll be honest with you. And I talk a lot about dirt and soil. I mean, the difference in dirt and soil. A soil is live with microbes. And when we're talking microbes, we're talking about bacteria, algae, blue-green algae, mold, yeast, uh, actinomycetes, uh, microhyzia. There's all kinds of earthworms. There's all kinds of things that are alive in that soil. Like you said, there's a whole world down there going on. And if you start depleting the numbers of those microbes, you're going to slow that cycle down, slow the process down, and you're going to end up with a compacted soil. A compacted soil now has a, it restricts the root development of the plant. And so now you've got less roots, you've got less, less exposure to water, less exposure to oxygen, less exposure to nutrients, all of which that plant has got to have. That, that plant, think of a plant as breathing just like you do. The respiratory system of the plant is to basically pull water up through the plant, cool the plant off, and evaporate it out of the leaves. So without the root system, without those microbes and that oxygen, you're screwed. Wow. I'm going to tell you something. God, God's, I don't want to go to preaching. God's great. Go ahead. Preach on. I mean, we don't mind. Well, no, I mean, it's just a, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic it's thing that I've, I have. I've spent most of my life in it just preaching I mean, I say preaching the gospel of soil, yeah. and, 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 and in the last, as you say, five or six years, all of a sudden everybody wants to talk about soil health. One of the reasons that they got to talking about soil health is because some people started finding out about these about the radishes and about, uh, and about uh, uh, turnips and all this different stuff, and now all of a sudden, now we want to grow, grow uh, cover crops. In 1981, I looked at a five-year study that study went on for 12 years at the Rice, uh, not, uh, excuse me, at the uh, uh, experiment station in Natchitoches, Louisiana for LSU. They did a cover crop and it was a vetch, it was a combination cover crop for 12 years. At the end of 12 years, they could raise a two bale cotton crop without applying any nitrogen to it. Now, the problem is the practical side of it. Yes. Nobody can grow a cover crop every year for 12 years on a piece of cotton ground and still get a cotton crop put in. Right. Yeah. I think that's the biggest. Um, but but it shows you the potential. Yes. I, I love the idea of, of that world and, and the possibilities. But 
for our guy, for me, it's just not feasible most of the time, if if ever. I mean, we're talking about it, and we're talking about it with people that hopefully that are listening that grow food plots that really want to know what do I got to do to have a good, healthy food plot. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and 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 in and in reality. Uh, the simple, the simple truth is they need to they need to plan ahead, and they need to start working on it six to eight weeks before they plant at the very latest. Yeah. And uh, then they won't have those. They really they won't they won't have those issues. It really shows you how, uh, for lack of a better term, brilliant. Um, and without thinking about it, my granddad's generation and his granddad's generation was about rolling their garden over mm-hmm. after the. You know, after the last after, they, after the last yeah, after the last carrot came out of it, and then right. they weren't back into it until it was planting time. That's yeah, right. so we need do we need to start plowing our fields earlier? I mean, because you know, with food plot, a lot of times it's late summer, we're all dropping plows in the ground and it's hot. I mean, is there an advantage to us to your point starting eight weeks earlier and go ahead and, and plowing? Absolutely, because what that does is you're turning you're turning that crop residue, that prior residue under. It's not going to rot laying on top of the ground. Mm-hmm. If you want it to rot and break down and, and release nutrients, and at the same time feed the microbes, you need to turn it under. The, the, the sooner you turn it under, the better off you're going to be. And I'll tell you what we like to do. We, we, we grow oats, okay? Uh, we've run all kinds of tests with wheat and rye and oats, and, man, they'll eat the oats down to the ground before they'll touch anything else. And then before they can finish the other, they'll go back to eating oats again. That's just us. But what we like to do is we like to let our oats head in the spring. Now, we we, 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 we run some strips through there for the turkeys because the, the turkey guys say we they, like want, them turkeys. they want, they want, <laughs> they want some disc ground for the turkeys, whatever. But I'm not that guy. But anyway, we are. The, <laughs> well, my so are my nephews, and they're Mississippi State people too. I don't know, I don't understand that. But anyway, <laughs> I guess I should have said that. But anyway, uh, but ser- seriously, we like to let it head, let the seed dry. When the seed is dry, that's when we go in and we bush hog it. And of course, we got clover under it that looks really, really great, you know. And and so we do that because as soon as the 15th of June comes, you know, the clover starts, the heat starts wearing on the clover. Mm-hmm. That's typically when we're going to go in there and we're going to basically turn it down, bush hog it down to the ground as low as we can get it, which might be like two inches. And then we, we disc it right then. We go ahead and disc it. And, uh, a lot, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these annual clovers tend to come back. You know, they say they're annual, but they, you know some of the, some of your stuff we've done. It's it's come back several years, so uh, not as thick, but uh, that's what we like to do. So you're talking about what we like to do. I say we like to do it in June because that's our busy time of year. We sort of struggle to get over there and do it as quick as we do. Usually by the fifteenth of July, we're panicking to get over there and get it cut down and and uh, and dissed. But so I know the you disadvantage to that. The disadvantage to doing that. I think there are more advantages. The disadvantage to that is it can grow back up in weeds, and you may find yourself needing to go back over it again or burn it down and go back over it, depending on how, how early you go. But but we don't have that much of a problem with it. So if if we're planting the 1st of October, how I don't even know how long that is, from the 15th of June to the 1st of October. July, August. Five and a half months. December. 
October, yeah. So you're putting a but disc in there twice. It, 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 you you got a seed bed there that's fine when you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you think um, if you're doing that route, let's say you're discing, let's just for an even number, let's just say the 1st of July, mm-hmm. and then you're – and we're taking for granted we're not doing a spring or summer crop in there. But if we're relying on this solely for a fall crop for hunting and, and nutrition, if you turn that ground over in late June, early July, let it rest – when it comes planting time, whether that be the first of September or the first of October, whenever you see the rainfall coming, do you disc it deep again? Do no. you disc it shallow? No, sir. What I'll do, I'll scratch it. Yeah. All we're going to do is scratch it. That loose, top, loose bed conserve soil moisture. Well, because look, we're doing the same thing everybody else is doing. We're broadcasting. I don't look. My my plant manager and and my sales manager, they hunt with me. They do. Damon, my nephew, I want to get Bill in there. I'll get in trouble. They they actually do all the work. I'm not going to tell them how to do the work because they're doing it and they and they do a fine job with it. But what they but what they'll do, they'll come in there, and all they're going to do is they're going to scratch it and and throw it out. David, who farmed for 30 years, is after me every year for a drill. He wants a drill. If we do a drill, we can do this. We can do that. or Whatever. I said, yeah, but, you know, this way we can get it done. It's working. And so we broadcast everything. We broadcast corn. We don't have a problem broadcasting corn. We don't have any problem with it. But what we do with corn, we try to plant it late season so that it's pollinating when it's cooler. If you plant it early, like farmers try to get it in, and and, and they, they want to get it in in March, early mm-hmm. uh, or early April, if at all possible. Got to because because of the because of the heat. We, for for what we're doing, we'll wait past that that window. We'll go in there and we'll try to plant it in the middle of June if we can get the moisture at all. And in, in our in our creek bottoms, I mean, we disc it and moisture wicks up. We don't have any problem with moisture, believe it or not, in those areas. So we can go in there and plant it middle of June, same time that we're cutting those other ones down. We can plant that, and. Uh, it pollinates good because it's pollinating at a time of year when it's already cool at night. And I, we don't get into that, but no. nighttime temperatures are a whole lot more than important than daytime temperatures when it comes to pollination. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, wow, it's just what we do. Well, I tell you what, we this is this has been a deep dive. Oh, you know, okay. we've been going at it a while here, so. Johnny, I feel like we need to let you take a break here for a few. I'm, 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 I've, I've probably said too much, and I apologize. No, you, you've done good. Right. Lanny, do you have any more questions? Well, I do. Are we, are we kind of winding well, things well, up here? Well, I don't know. I know Mac's got a question. I, well, I'm gonna ask my question after Mac because Mac has such good yeah, questions. Well, Come on, Mac. Did you hear what Thatcher. he said about the possum earlier? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he, he did. So Mac is the most inquisitive person in here, and uh, he's been texting me questions. I said, "Well, just, he, he will ask. Just, just ask him." So, this is a pretty dumb damn question, but I know other people probably are going to ask the same thing, and I have people ask me as well. So, to go back to the very beginning, when you have a food plot, and so you take your soil test, you disc your dirt, you take your soil test, and it says it calls for that ton of lime. You put that ton of lime on your food plot. Would you work that lime in the food plot? Or would you just let it work its way naturally through water soluble? You, you definitely want to try to you try you want to try to disc it into a full six inches if you can. 
So he's and the sooner the better. So he's saying put out the lime and then dish it in. Right. Incorporate yes. it into the soil. Okay. One hundred percent. No, that makes sense. And then as far as fertilization goes, when you fertilize your food plots, what time? When do you do that in your planting process? We try to we try to put out the fertilizer, including the nitrogen, anywhere from really. We I, I, well, we prefer to do it about four weeks before planting. Mm-hmm. We usually end up around two weeks before, but we want to be four weeks. And one reason is you're using what well, we're we're using granular fertilizers. If you're using a liquid fertilizer, you got a lot better advantage of putting it closer. But with granular fertilizers that are broadcast, you know, we would love to have it out there. And and worked in. Yeah, a month before. Oh plan. wow! So that that's really that's different than what we've kind of been doing, or at yeah. least I've been doing. Well, I'm gonna tell you something else too. It's also better. You know, I said get the lime into the full six inches. I don't want to do that with the with the fertilizer. I want the fertilizer in the top couple of inches. Uh-huh. I want to concentrate it in the seed zone because if you can get if you can get seed a seedling up and out of the ground and growing, the quicker you can do that the less stress problem you're going to have to deal with. And so if you can do that and you got your nitrogen, whatever, whatever else, phosphor, potash, whatever you're putting out, if you can put it in the top couple of inches, and I mean, I'm talking about scratching it in, literally. It's almost like if you were going to plant a grass seed, mm-hmm. so we're going to scratch it into the top couple of inches, I'd want my fertilizer to be in that same zone. But I don't want it in the zone and put out at the same time as the seed. Right. I would prefer to put it out bef- well before the seed, and hopefully three or four weeks. And, and you say, why three or four weeks? Because in three or four weeks, I feel like I'm going to get some decent rain. In two weeks, I may be dry as a bone for two weeks. Yeah. So yeah. the three or four weeks, weeks is really more like a better opportunity to get a rain on it. And does, and that rain dissolves that fertilizer. Yes, yeah, yeah. because okay. it's, yeah. it's it's soluble fertilizer. It's got to it's got to have rain for it to actually to to solubilize, and then after it solubilizes, then it can go to work. Man, Bob, your food plot's going to look better than they ever have this year. I'm really excited. (laughs) I think another big advantage to working your fertilizer in, it it really, if you look at the timing when so many of us are putting food plots out from the Mason-Dixon line south for sure, it's hot. Oh, yeah. In the fall. We call it fall, but it may still be 95 degrees (laughs) during the day and 85 at night. You can lose a lot of your nitrogen, specifically if it's maybe ammonium nitrate that you're still using, which is a lot more volatile, I think, than urea might be. Or is it the other way around? Other way around. Urea. So if you're using urea, which is 4600 versus 3400 ammonium nitrate, you can lose a lot of that to volatilization. You can watch it happen on top of the ground. If you leave Especially with the moisture as it is outside. Yeah. When it's I mean, that humid, yeah. it's almost like you can watch it leaving the food if you, if you put, it in. If you put urea, if it's non-coated, if you put urea on top of the ground and the ground's damp, if you have a temperature that's 75 degrees or warmer for four days, you can lose half of it in four days. Yeah. Wow. That's $100 bills. Yeah. That ain't, that ain't like losing that's textbook bills. stuff. Yeah. That's not me. Yeah. yeah. You know. And I've seen it. I've seen it happen. All right, Lanny. Got one more question for you, Mr. Johnny. Enjoyed this conversation, as you can tell. But I know, I think a few years ago, I caught wind that you were doing some kind of unconventional uh, food plotting, in addition to what you were talking about today, which happened to, uh, you were fertilizing, I believe, kudzu for, for deer. Just Ooh, wanting to know if, if you were still doing that, if you were having success doing it, and, you know, kind of what the thinking was behind it, because I thought it was quite ingenious. <laughs> it wasn't ingenious if you go out there if it, it, look, 
where we are, we're fortunate. I mean, we got we got twelve hundred something acres now, and it's mostly hardwood, three or four hundred acres of pine, planted pine. And there are times of the year where there's just nothing out there for them to eat. Right. You know, the summer, the, the summer always bothers us, and we're always trying to get summer plots in, which is a tough thing for us. With you know, with the spring being like it is with our business. But when you go out there and you see a browse line six foot off the ground and every kudzu leaf is eaten off the kudzu, I mean, it does not take a rocket scientist to figure out, well, they're eating kudzu. They must like kudzu. Mm -hmm. And so what we did, we had a situation where we were trying to keep it from spreading across a road and we were cutting, cutting it. And we came up with the idea of isolating, which is important, isolating the kudzu where it couldn't get out of this one area. Yeah. And fertilizing it. And we did two things. We put some of our products on it, and we put some fertilizer on it. And that's been probably, I don't even know, 10 or 12 years ago. Filmed that in 2011. Is that when it was? We're still doing it, and it works. It's like flat and works. And you've call been able to, native, I call it a native food plot. I don't know what to call it. I, you know, and you've been able to it, it works. It works. It hadn't got out of that. Well, we ain't gonna tell nobody else. No, you have to. That's, that, but you have to. You have to stay on top of it. I mean, a bush hog. A bush hog will do it, and then every now and then it gets so much going across the road, you end up disking the road. Mm-hmm. You're trying to disc it up because a bush hog won't get low enough to cut some of it that crosses the road. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we've even had a couple of times where we cut a tree down and it got across the road and you got in that tree. I said, well, cut the damn thing. Right. Cut it down. <laughs> cut it down. Yeah, cut Matt, it down. Put, 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 put James over here. It's been said. What I but think I mean, it's important it, 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 it works, but I'm going to tell you something else, too, that we do the same thing. Uh, with this, with black, with blackberry. Oh yeah, yeah. Just uh, fertilizing native browse, which we yeah, talk about uh, a lot. And and uh, and honeysuckle. For for so, listeners that may be out of Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia, if you're not familiar with kudzu, it is the vine that ate the South. It was yeah, brought here. If you talk about fertilizing, you, you might get I thought surely everybody knows what kudzu is. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of folks that don't, not, but yeah, you, yeah. if you don't. Understand how proliferate what it can do. But it was He's brought standing. in here. It was brought in here for solar to, to yeah, for solar erosion. It was a good yeah. idea, uh, but then it got out of hand, and it and it spreads so fast. It completely eats the canopy of timber up, and it, you know it covers everything up. But however, managed correctly, it sounds oh, like it's a great. But it's got a gorgeous bloom, and you know that there are people that actually make like a uh, they make like a jam Ooh. or a jelly. This is I all cut, up Dudley's yeah, yeah. I did not know this yeah. until my my mother in law actually got some and did it. I mm-hmm. couldn't believe it. Pretty I, good. I'd, I've never heard of that. And it's it's good. well, yeah, but all, all jelly's good. It's got enough. Sugar. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> did, did you do a tissue test? Do you know the like how much nutrients are in that soil? No. I mean, in the kudzu. Oh, I just wonder. No, I didn't do any of that. I just knew the deer like. Yeah, and so yeah. we're gonna fertilize it. Makes sense yeah. to me. Well, there that's a gamekeeper that, move right there. Yeah, they, it really is. Well, what some people may not realize. I can't believe y'all remembered that. I, yeah. I've been fascinated by the time I saw it. <laughs> what a lot of people don't realize is you can't get rid of it without major, major herbicide and mechanical cultivation. It takes a if you can army. if you can cut it down to the ground and the the new little leaves bud out and hit it thin, you can kill it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how to do that. 
My wife keeps telling me she wants to be rid of all of it. I said, you have no idea what you're talking about. There's thousands and thousands of vines Hope you own a coming helicopter. out of the ground. Huh? Yeah. Hope you own a helicopter. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it, yeah. And, 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 you, yeah. You know, they're, they're telling me that it would take three trips at about 70-something dollars a trip to maybe get 80% of it. Yeah. Mm. It's a, it's a nightmare. I got some, and I, I spend a lot of time fighting it. It's well, just growing down the road from my house. Can, but if like you can isolate it, if you can isolate it, I mean, you can use it. But we we had the first time we saw it, it was in an area where where we we had a like a four man stand up on a hill, and then a slope down to a a food plot, and then across the creek was a big food plot. And what we noticed was the the kudzu was just in this one area. We had a road on this side and a road and a on a food plot on that side. So it was easy enough to isolate it. But what we did is we cut the trees down because they were blocking the view of mm-hmm. the food plot, which was down in the bottom. First thing we did, we go in there and we looked and said, holy moly, look at this. I mean, and it was just solid. There wasn't a leaf on it for six, all the way up to six foot, six and a half foot off the ground. Nothing, just vines. But what's above six feet is a ton of biomass. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. Yeah, no, that's crazy. It, it is. It There's is. some pine plantations in Winston yeah. County. Completely taken. Oh, Lanny, I don't think you want it. Let me. Oh, let me just I just something. thought it was a, a something like he was. But where he was, there's more cuds than we are here. And I thought mm-hmm. that was a really good application it, of not only you know what he knows about, but I mean it's it's a smart thing to do. It, it is. Instead of fighting it, yeah. But, but the, the key thing he said is he's isolated. Oh yeah, yeah. Look, I get it 100. percent That's the key to the whole thing. Because if you fertilize it, you put some of my stuff on it. <laughs> you, you better, yeah. No, really, you yeah. you better isolate it. You, you are not going to be happy with yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and if there's an area that you can't isolate, the last thing you want to do is fertilize it. Right, yeah. that's right. Makes sense. I just thought it was a a, a really good you know move. Yeah. So, well, look, we've been at this a while. I th- I feel like we need to go eat some lunch or something. I, I'm about to develop a headache, and it, we've just been talking about so much. I've made a lot of notes, and it looks like. Bobby's I'm excited because we're going to, you know, even for us who were all avid food plotters, we're going to do stuff a little bit different this year, mm-hmm. you know, based on what Johnny's been telling us about today. So I'm excited to see the results. So well, get after it. So, yeah, so Dudley, I hate Dudley missed us when he had a lot of good questions to ask you. And, and uh, But we want to get you back over here at some Absolutely. point. Who, who missed who? Dudley. Dudley, Dudley Phelps. Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember Dudley. Yeah. yeah. yeah you can't forget. forget Dudley when you – you meet him. So, look, Johnny, we appreciate you being here. Get people that are interested in learning more about – Johnny's company, Delta Ag. You've got a website. We at plantbiologic.com mm-hmm. sell some of Johnny's products on there, the soil solution and the seed coat, which we're big fans of. So, And we need to do more with that. And, yeah, but, treat the yeah, seed, Mac. Treat the soil. <laughs> treat the plant. Yeah. So this has been fascinating. We appreciate you being here, Johnny. And uh, is there anybody you want to say hello to, your wife or your, your daughter or anybody? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I just hope they don't ever hear it. <laughs> thank you all for having me. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, we, we've enjoyed it. Mac, thank you for what you did. Richie, you've been in here. David McElwain somewhere. Jason Cleveland, it looks like he Gone left us again. for the day. But, but look, folks, uh, we appreciate you all listening, and we'll be back next week with another podcast. So thank you all for listening. Get us out of here, Mac, Mac. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.